Hello, this is Mike from Darker Days Radio, and joining me is David. You're listening to the toughest secret frequency ever. A secret frequency on Gnosticism. David, thank you so much for joining me. Your, uh, your knowledge in the obscure and the occult is going to be very useful for this episode. And boy, <laughs> is my brain melted just researching some of this stuff. So how did you find uh, uh, researching these, uh, these cults and... Um, alternate sects and heresies <laughs> oh I, I love this stuff this is this is my bread and butter um i i sit here in the evenings now i finally got hold of some plastic crack uh back back into some painting minis i'll, I'll stick some youtube videos on um some podcasts or something and listen to like weird occult hermetic philosophies mm. um theosophy uh, all, the, all, the, all the wonderful stuff so doing something on gnosticism I love it because it's such a weird, weird, weird thing when you take it as a form of religion rather than as a, I suppose, a philosophy of thought. Um, it's, In, it's great. I love indeed, it. yeah. I mean, I was first introduced to Gnosticism. I kind of knew about it reading stuff online and like World of Darkness message boards and everything. Mm. And then I heard about it with the, uh, in respect to the cult role-playing game. And I was like, oh, okay, Gnosticism. This is probably all like really organized and very <coughs> easy to understand and codified. <laughs> and I started digging into it uh, years and years ago. And I'm like, this is like, it's like conspiracy fiction. First. You know how you know how Mormonism is like is fan fiction of of religion. This is like conspiracy <laughs> fiction of religion, and it oh, melts much. your brain. Well, you can just go down the roots of um, God. What's his name? The poet. What's his name now? Uh, did Tiger Tiger Burning Bright? Blake. Mm. Um, Blake uh, created an entire thing on this as well, and it's it, he did it under drugs, and it kind of fits. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I got introduced into, I suppose, the idea of Gnosticism when I was maybe 16, 17, back mm. when I was uh, <laughs> part of the, uh, the Christian cult, I suppose. Um, and I found the Gospel of Thomas in a book, in, in a bookshop, oh, and I started yeah. reading that, and then I got told not to read it because that's heresy. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah, I think we should stop teasing the listeners and really get into this. Because tonight, you will be regaled with stories, both fact and most definitely fiction, uh, and treated to a plethora of ideas for your horror games. Um, we don't really have any content warnings for this episode, but uh, we will be extensively talking about religion. So please be prepared for that. Um, Gnosticism is a scattered religious thought that has occurred in or has stolen elements from you know Hellenism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, Manichaeanism, and Zoroastrianism, uh, probably amongst others as well. I just don't even don't even know. Um, the vast majority of the writing, yeah, the majority of the writing and research um, in the English language concerns Christian Gnosticism, um, and specifically that found in the Nag Hammadi Library or the uh, Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas that uh, David just mentioned, the Apocryphon of John, and the Coptic text known as the Thunder Perfect Mind. Um, so our discussion today is going to be biased towards English sources. Uh, we'll strive to be as well-rounded in our discussion, but honestly, it's kind of impossible to provide a comprehensive analysis without either having a PhD or, you know, a collection of moldering tomes. I wish. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, the theology in this episode is going to get really, really messy. Uh, so if you aren't interested in hearing all this today, you can just skip ahead to the next episode. And then, well, let's go on to the horror and the Gnosticism. So Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, or secret knowledge. It's generally agreed by academics that Gnosticism is an extreme form of dualism, a belief system wherein followers consider to be, there to be uh, a distinct spiritual good and material evil uh, aspects and principles to the world. Uh, humans are trapped in the evil material uh, where their divine spark is oppressed. This divine spark, uh, you know, as usually defined in Christian and Jewish cults, is usually a literal piece of their god, Yahweh. Uh, Gnostic churches typically require asceticism, uh, taking the form of strict poverty, you know, not eating much, not indulging in material possessions, um, and in some cases, you know, avoiding sexual intercourse. Um, we'll discuss the particular examples of these Gnostic traits in different cults and heresies in a lot more detail later. Uh, historically, Gnosticism has been very decentralized. This collection of religious ideas, dogmas, and systems that became prevalent in different Jewish and then later early Christian cults in the uh, late first century AD. Uh, back then, none of the cults or groups uh, would have considered themselves Gnostic, but may have recognized similar practices and esotericism amongst similar cults. Um, Gnosticism itself was uh, not really coined until the 17th century by the philosopher Henry Moore uh, in reference to a purported heresy in the uh, Book of Revelation. Uh, this heresy was centered on the, uh, the city of Thyatira, where the false prophet Jezebel seduced the Christians into fornicating and eating food sacrificed to idols. This wasn't really encouraged back in those days. So Moore called these Christians the Gnosticisme, uh, which derived from a second century description of the school of Valentinius, which was also named a heresy called Gnostic. So that was a whole lot right there. Um, and I don't even know really how to how to unpack all of that. But basically, I think one of the things to realize is that, you know, particularly with early Christianity, it wasn't like a one unified church. That's what they, you know, would like you to think. But really, it was a lot of different groups, cults, um, some of them Christian, some of them more like the Pharisees, and many of them kind of doing different theological uh, thinking and explorations. And some of this obviously came to be particular Christian churches that exist today, whether it be Church of the East, Roman Catholic Church. Other things had much more esoteric uh, ideas, uh, which were carried forward into different cults that were typically considered by today's verbiage as heresies. So I think that's really the point I want to get across. As you can see already, just starting with this, it's complex. It's not just a simple, this is a religion, this is its, its beliefs, this is what they do. It's, as I'll come to in a second, it's one of the earliest forms of Christianity that existed. So unpacking kind of the, these kind of texts that we have about this pre-formation of the church Christianity becomes quite hard because the church has 
it's a heresy within the within the early church, and they tried to get rid of a lot of this paper, a lot of this detail. And it's only through modern studies and things that we're actually starting to really unpack what the original Gnostics believed. So yeah, you know, it's kind of like due to the writings of people such as Irenaeus um, from I think the third and fourth century, if I get that right. They pushed the wrongness of thought that was in, in Gnosticism because they wanted to codify the beliefs of the church or the beliefs of Christianity. Um, so the Gnostic, Gnostic beliefs um, didn't have a Bible. They didn't believe in codifying the Gospels. They accepted all Gospels and picked and chose what they kind of wanted to... to have within their specific beliefs they didn't want it to be what we now consider the church and that was all down to Irenaeus um, and he coded like the 27 gospels that we've got now yeah and from a religious standpoint that's that's interesting to point out because you know the the, the catholic church in particular the council of nicaea really did a very similar thing where they picked out the gospels mm. that they approved and then yep well they obviously codified that into a biblical religious text to use the, a central book. Clearly, Gnosticism didn't have that, that central book in the same way, but still picked the uh, Gospels that they, in their particular um, uh, cosmology, wanted to use and kind of, kind of approve of and explore. There was, there's examples of um, Gnostics just going to any church um, because or any any meeting or church or temple, just because that's where that they they could worship, um, even though they didn't believe in what the the church was having. So yeah. there are examples of, of of many of these sects interacting with each other. So, but eventually they were all pushed aside with the rise of the Roman Church and the canon of the New Testament. So that's where we get this codification of the Bible. The Gnostics became heterodox. And this is where we start to see the rise of this Gnostic heresy. The history of this is really deep and it is incredibly interesting. I love delving into this, but this is not the place for me to go on to a history rant um, about how the church stopped people believing what they wanted to believe in. Um, if we remember, um, there are a bunch of YouTube links and sources that we can put into the show notes where you can delve into this further. Because as Mike says, you kind of need a PhD to really understand this. So, and the the, the YouTube videos and, and sources are actually from PhD religious scholars that might be of interest to people. But I think one of the interesting things is that as time went on, you know, Christian Gnosticism did actually become a lot more codified. Particular terms became more and more common and were eventually mixed in with uh, esotericism and the occult. We'll try to explain some of these uh, basic uh, common principles of Christian Gnosticism later, but the terms that we'll use are not universal or exhaustive. Um, some teachings use different terms. We're going to also talk about some Jewish Gnosticism and Arabic Gnosticism, um, which have completely different language uh, in some cases. And some of these different terms uh, and different forms are used in esotericism, such as the theosophists that uh, David mentioned, which we're not really going to talk about today. Uh, the Rosicrucians, also, that'd be a great episode for another Secret Frequency in the future. And uh, New oh, Age religions as well. definitely do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rosicrucians lead into everybody. Because 
from from just something like that there have been many changes of these ideas and concepts from that original core idea of gnosis and knowledge um, we shall discuss some of these um, over time but yeah as, as you as we know um, various people over time have have got their hands on Gnostic texts and given their ideas which has then changed even our modern opinions of what it is um, you can look at people like Carl Jung and Alistair Crowley uh, who have vastly influenced modern knowledge and modern ideas of what Gnosticism is. Carl Jung has a lot to explain um, for some of his or well I suppose people's interpretations of his wrong interpretation of the Nag Hammadi libraries and things so but yeah it's uh it's a bit of a mess <laughs> it definitely is so let's dive into that mess David because we're going to talk about cosmology <laughs> a little bit I know you've got like pages and pages here so I'm really gonna I'm generally gonna let you run free uh kind of exploring Ooh. all the different little aspects but I do just have a little paragraph here kind of kind of outlining the, the general things real quick so in Coptic traditions of Gnosticism, they postulate a remote supreme godhead called the Monad, or the One. Uh, the Monad is this unknowable uh, being that knows all, existing outside of time and space. Uh, from this highest divinity projects light and the lower divine beings, known as the Aeons, which are typically paired, it depends on your cosmology, but usually it's a paired male and female entity as well as the uh, heavenly realm projected from it. The monad exists separately from the evil material world, which was created by the son of the final Eon, Sophia, who, who thought that uh, they were the only god, essentially. Uh, we'll continue this in a bit. But uh, divine elements of the monad uh, fall into the material realm, and these are then locked within human beings. So in most Gnostic traditions, human beings are considered to be partially partially or fully divine and uh david i'll let you just run free with all this and i'll, I'll provide co color commentary as we go that is a very very simplistic introduction of um gnosticism and you can automatically see how cult fits into that with the name such as aeons in there as well so mm -hmm. but yeah let's kind of give you an idea of how the monad is represented and thought of in Gnostic schools. Um, I'm going to read a very short passage from the Apocryphon of John, which is about the one. Um, I've copied the whole thing here in the notes, but I'm not gonna read it all because it gets very repetitive after a point. <laughs> um, but so this is from the Apocryphon of John, one of the, the texts from the Nag Hammadi Library, uh, and it goes, the inexpressible one, the one rules all, nothing has authority over it, it is the God. It is father of everything, holy one, the invisible one over everything. It is uncontaminated, pure light no eye can bear to look within. The one is the invisible spirit. It is not right to think of it as a god or as like god. It is more than just god. Nothing is above it, nothing rules it, since everything exists within it. It does not exist within anything. Since it is not dependent on anything, it is eternal, it is absolutely complete, and so needs nothing. It is utterly perfect light. So you can kind of see their their, their, their creation or their idea of the one, the monad, um, however you want to express it, where they start off going, it is God, but it is more than God. So it's more than that Christian concept of God. Um, 
And we'll kind of come to a discussion on that in a bit, I think. The important thing to note about the monad is that it is it is supposed to be basically beyond human comprehension. Whereas, yeah. you know, generally in uh, Abrahamic religions, you know, the uh, you know divine god is typically somewhat comprehensible. You know, they can use words and generally understand most yeah. concepts about it, although there's always going to be certain mysteries about it. Uh, in this case, the monad is is incomprehensible. It is yeah. completely beyond, which is also strange because if if you're part of that divinity about this incomprehensible thing, you would think you would be able to understand some of it. But maybe that's where the gnosis, the secret knowledge, comes in. Yeah. Um, we are God, but it's kind of... I suppose you can think of it like um, a leaf in a forest or a leaf in a, a jungle. It is part of the jungle but it doesn't know the jungle and it can never know the jungle it can only ever know its small individual part of it and we are that leaf in that jungle um Great we are point. part of that jungle very very good um, analogy it's a very simplest yeah it's a very simplistic analogy but it's kind of i suppose one way you can look at it but yeah um it's it the the monad becomes so much more than the Christian idea of God. And there is a weird separation between the Christian God and the monad, depending upon which school of thought you apply to it. Some schools of thought apply the monad as God, as the Christian God. Some apply it to some of the aeons, and some of the aeons become God. So we get this weird connection and weird stuff goes on. Anyway. So that's the monad. Um, the next thing up is the aeons, um, the emanations that Mike just talked about a minute ago. These are emanations projected from the monad, um, and together they they form what is known as the plemora. I'm hoping I pronounced that right, which is the totality of heavenly power. And you can kind of equate this to a heavenly realm. It's not specifically a place. It's kind of more than that. Like the monad is more than God. Um, the plemora is more than a realm. It's it's the whole totality of power. Um, so it's kind of a hard concept to get your head around power and place. But the men, uh, the aeons, as mentioned a little ago, they come in pairs, uh, sometimes called, and again, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, sigites. Specifically, these are found in the Valentinian school of thought. Uh, and the important one for today is that the final emanation, and again, this comes mostly from Valentinian, is Sophia. She, she or they are often equated with wisdom, though she wasn't exactly that <laughs> wasn't exactly that wise, as we'll come to see. Um, but she's also connected to the world soul or the anima mundi. Um, so, if you're into theosophy and stuff, this is where anima mundi comes from. Yeah. Due to her jealousy of the monad. And so we're kind of starting to see ideas that might creep into later Christianity. She tries to breach the barrier from Plemora to the monad um, itself and is cast out. So maybe a, a, a connection here to Satan. Um, and this is one story that is there. Another goes that she tries to emanate by herself without her Siji. 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 I can say that. S-Y-S-S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, if anybody wants to know. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. <laughs> it's a real tongue twister. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, whatever the reason is, um, whether she tries to meet the monad or tries to emanate herself, she is removed from Plamora and she falls. And in her sorrow, fear and anguish, she accidentally creates matter and soul in the form of Yaldabaoth, or, and again, cult reference here for anybody who's interested, the Demiurge, um, who then went on to create the material realm. Um, it also goes by the name, uh, so Yaldabaoth, the Demiurge, it also goes by the name of Samael uh, or Salkos, again, depending on the school of uh, Gnosticism you want to play with. It's something I just want to, you know, toss out there as a as a fun fact is, uh, of course, that Sophia, as wisdom, is also the name of the uh, the capital of Bulgaria, and you know mm-hmm. clearly has some Gnostic uh, relations, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, um, Sophia is from from Gnostic thought um, is brought through into all manner of different esoteric schools of thought. Uh, um, mm-hmm. So we start to see things within. Hermeticism, we start to see things within alchemy. A lot of modern Western esoteric thought is based off Hellenic Gnosticism and kind of the roots from there. Yep. But it's also a lot longer and more complicated than just that. So the Demiurge, which is a word which is synonymous around all over places now, um, actually comes from a Greek word, Demiorgos. Uh, which means public or skilled worker. So that's an interesting choice of words mm, here. Yeah. And so in the Christian and Jewish Gnostic traditions, some texts allude to the Demiurge as Ariman, El, Satan, or Yahweh. So we're seeing it being connected to good and evil. So right. here, El and Yahweh are names for the Jewish God. Looking up the roots of these two names is really interesting. I'll leave that for another day. But if we notice here that the Demiurge is not the top being in the cosmos, cosmos, but is a lesser divinity. It has come from the monad emanates, creates Sophia. Sophia does something which then creates the Demiurge. And in some schools of thought, that Demiurge is God. So we're seeing again, it, the, the, the Judo-Christian God may not be God. So we know Satan is Satan, um, not Lucifer. Lucifer's a mistranslation um, between Latin and Hebrew. But listen to my other podcast for that one. <laughs> Ariman is an evil spirit, god or force of Zoroastrianism. So we're seeing connections here to roots of where it may come from. So this is the Demiurge. This is who they are. Um, why are they important? Well, they created the physical universe um, and the human body. Um, they created material existence, so it has a an, it has a view. What have I written here? <laughs> it has a tendency to view material existence negatively. Uh, yes, it kind of gets jealous of it, I suppose, and so it then becomes more and more extreme um, when materiality, including the human body, uh, which is perceived as evil and constrictive. It becomes a prison for its, a deliberate prison for its inhabitants. So these emanations and these parts of the monad that fall from the monad, from the one, to this material realm, get trapped in the human body, which is a construct of the demiurge. So 
One of the goals of Gnostic belief is to break free from this material prison and to ascend beyond um, and try and find the monad, though that may not be a great idea, but it's kind of maybe return to the monad through Plemora um, and things. So it's finding the secret belief, the secret path, the secret Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so next up, Yeldabaoth, so another name for um, the Demiurge, created this physical universe because they lacked knowledge of who they were. So we said that Sophia was cast out of Plemora. The Yaldabaoth is the son or the child of Sophia. Um, and Sophia cast out Yaldabaoth as well because he was basically being an abomination. Um, he was wicked and ignorant of many things. They proclaimed, so Yaldabaoth proclaimed in the material realm because he was unaware of anything else. I am God and there is no other God beside me. So he's now made himself God because he's never met his mother. He's never seen Plemora or her. He's heard of it, but he's never seen it. Hmm. Um, so he thinks he is now God. And so he thinks because he is God, he can emanate as well and he creates 12 archons uh, he created these from himself um, there is some interesting translations <laughs> uh, that basically state he had sex with himself um, and so gave rose to them rather than emanating he actually just had sex with himself so he created these 12 archons to rule over this um, material realm with him uh, but due to his depravity and his lack of knowledge, the, ra- the realm came out warped and wrong and was no match for the Plemora that he had heard of. So the Demiurge, from this, we can see that there's very many different moralistic points of view you can take from this. So different groups see it in different ways. Some see the Demiurge as inherently evil um, and some see it just as a misguided lacking in knowledge um, being and mm, yeah. if you want to know more obviously you can go look that up yourself it gets really complicated when you look at the morality of, of Gnosticism and Yaldabaoth because he's kind of innocent but also kind of not yeah yeah and things just get very, so confusing when you start looking at different sects because you know <clears throat> Dave you just mentioned there being 12 archons and I think you were getting that from uh, Valentinianism. Um, yes. Yeah. So when I was researching, I was mostly looking at Sethianism, and in that one, there are seven evil, uh, seven mm, not necessarily evil archons, and then kind of an undetermined, indeterminate number of evil ones created by the demiurge. Yeah. So things get like really confusing when you start looking at these different sects, and it really difficult to codify. As yeah, we keep mentioning. Because below, yeah, below this, I've also put a list of all of the other names from all of the other different places of all the archons and some connect to aeons and stuff. So indeed, it gets very, indeed. very, very confusing. Yeah, I wonder if sometimes they um, they say that particular... They, they confuse the terms aeon and archon, you know, because things yeah. are so little codified. You know, is there really yeah. a distinct hierarchy between them? Do they have different power levels? Clearly, in a gamified sense, um, 
that's something you put in. And that's clearly codified in, say, cult, um, which is why I want to, uh, you know, talk about a few of these, um, especially the, uh, the Sethian ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, seven archons created. Um, you, of course, have in this, in this context of Sethianism, they consider Yadaboeth a an archon, uh, which was representing forethought, um, and this was the first created, preceding the other six that are mentioned. And of course, Yadaboeth is also sometimes in some cults referred to as the demiurge. Um, so you can see that kind of confusion right there. Um, you also have uh, Yao, who's a uh, archon representing mastery, particularly mastery of, say, materialism. You have uh, Saboeth, who is representing divinity. Um, Adonaios, representing kingship. Eloios, uh, representing envy. Orios, representing wealth. And then Astaphaios, uh, who is equated to Sophia or wisdom. So you see, we mentioned before Sophia being an Aeon, but now in Sethianism, Sophia is an Archon in this case. So, you know, it's really a mixed bag between all these because some of them aren't inherently bad things like wisdom and and perhaps mastery, Um, but a lot of them are actually, these Archons serve as distractions, you know, like kingship and nobility, envy and wealth are really going to be detrimental to the Gnostic viewpoint, wherein they're trying to ascend to um, to that heavenly realm of uh, plethora and reach the monad once more. Um, Dave, you also uh, copied in some great stuff here about how like the uh, the visages of some of these different uh, creatures, because they have a oftentimes they have kind of a human body, but they have the face of an animal. Um, yeah. So I see right here we have Yao. Uh, which is a human body with the face of a snake with seven heads. So that's a, that's a pretty spicy one right there. Sabaoth having the face of a snake as well. Sabataitaios has a face of flaming fire. He's literally just a head of fire. I always find quite fun, rather than just being the animals of the other ones. The way we, yeah. we see with some of these, um, we say representing mastery and divinity um, and wisdom, wait, maybe wisdom and mastery are not too bad. There's the, you can then start to equate this to demonology um, through later religions where you see certain demons, especially within the Solom- Solomonic school of thought, where they actually represent good things like teaching of science and, and learning of knowledge. But what these are is um, they're bad in the respect that they teach anti-Christian thought processes. So they're they're teaching you knowledge beyond what you want. So representing mastery here would be mastering stuff that may not be uh, the monad would want you to master and things like that. So by looking at saying things are not generally bad, depends on your point of view and where you get them from. So yeah absolutely yeah mastery over the printing press that's uh it's gonna cause some people some trouble <laughs> yes yeah right um i think things are going to get even more confusing from now on um because we're going to delve oh, yeah. into adam and uh the adam so so we've got these these are 
archons. That's what we're talking about now, aren't we? We were talking about archons, yes. Um, we are. Yeah. They would then go on to create 365 more archons. So we end up with this, this initial group of 7 to 12, depending on where you are, and then they go on to create more. These become 365 parts of the psychical Adam. Um, I've written psychical wrong here. It's not a circle. It's psychical as in psychic. Um, this Adam was more powerful than the Archons, as it actually contained the power of each of them. So it contained the power of all 365 Archons. However, it was unaware of this power. Um, and so to make sure that it kept being unaware, the Archons cast it into a physical form, or Adam. And so this was then sent to the land of pleasure and gratification, the Garden of Eden. This was its prison. To keep the Adam unaware of its power, um, and as we are descendants of this Adam, we too are powerful, but imprisoned. So this is how we see the creation of Adam um, and humans within the Gnostic school of thought, and how we become part of the uh, the monad. Think I think this is specifically again Valentinian, and there are variations depending on which schools of thought you go down. Hmm. So uh, this is the root of most we thought we are prisoned. Yeah, so we are prisoned um, and must escape and fight past the Archons to reach our full potential as metaphysical beings and be one with the Plumora. So basically, we're demon puppets. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, the, the Archons created our prison. Um, we bow to them because we don't know that we're actually better than we are. So. Hmm. Uh, various different schools of Gnosticism have obviously various different views on this and different paths. So how does this relate then closer to Christianity? And again, Valentinian, because uh, this is just, just the biggest one with most of the information and the, the Narcomadi library is basically Valentinian. Van, Valentinian. Um, there are two archons here called Zoe and Sabaoth. Um, these basically rebel. Um, they become, I suppose, good archons is the best way to say it. Um, they don't agree with the prison that the material world is. Um, and they basically become God on a chariot. Um, so kind of like that traditional uh, romantic, not romantic, classical image of the Greek and gods and things where you see them riding across the sky in chariots. Yeah. This is what Zoe and Sabaoth become, and Sabaoth creates Jesus and Lucifer is the Demiurge. Now here, in this school of thought, Lucifer is actually a real thing, and is not a misrepresentation or a mistranslation of a Hebrew word. So, hmm. um... No, was, no. Uh, just, just to clarify, and I know, obviously, we, we only have so much knowledge of Valentinianism, but mm. Sabaoth is an archon who creates Jesus and Lucifer. Yes. Lucifer, who is a demiurge. Is Lucifer also... Oh, no, no, no. Uh, would you say he's Satan okay. in this case? Oh, uh, God, Satan is... I can't remember who Satan is now. Yeah. He might be at, like, a higher level in this. 
but yeah, I, I'm, this just, whole... I'm pointing this out because this is where it, it gets kind of recursive and really weird wherein yeah. even within the same let's say group of texts because yeah. Valentinianism lasted for hundreds of years um, but even within this you have different people at different let's say levels of power in the hierarchy being attributed but all being the demiurge mm-hmm and yeah, it, it, it's really confusing, which is uh, great for an RPG because when you <laughs> throw that at your players, they're going to be like, what's going on? Which school of thought are they in? I thought they were in this one. No, they're in the other one. What? Right. Um, right. Yeah. It, yeah. The whole thing with Jesus, well, sorry, the whole thing with Lucifer and Satan is complex anyway, Whatever, whether it's Gnosticism or just Christianity. Are they the same? Are they not the same? Um, and then you throw in the, the levels of mind-confusing fuckery that is Gnosticism, and it gets even worse. But yeah, Sabaoth uh, basically creates Jesus because he wants to give humans a way to break out of this mortal prison that we are in. Um, so he creates Jesus and Lucifer to kind of yeah give us a way, so also, give us a way out. Also, put a pin in that. In Valentinianism, Jesus is good. That might not be the case in all Gnosticisms we'll talk about here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you deal with that one. Yeah. I'll just mention that Jesus may or may not have existed. Uh, anyway. So, uh, I see, I remember we, at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned dualism. Um, right. Gnosticism is mostly dualism. But there are there is also um, parts of it that are can be considered monism. So there's the body and soul, the physical realm and spiritual realm, physical realm bad and evil. Uh, the physical realm is the bad and evil side, and the spiritual realm is the good side. So that's your dualism. Yeah, they are two fundamental concepts that exist that oppose each other. So e good versus evil. I wrote this very very long time ago, so I apologise if I sound confused. In the Gnostic system, there is a dualism between God, whether you consider that either the Demiurge or the Monad, and the material realm. And it can go from the extremes of radical dualism, where each divine force is equal, to mitigated dualism, where one is much more superior than the other. So, radical dualism, the Archons, the Aeons, the Monad, they're all equal forces. They're all kind of sit in the same plane. And mitigated dualism is where we see this idea that monad is unknowable, then you've got your aeons, then you've got your archons, and then kind of this, this stepladder approach. Um, but that's far too deep and really just for us to get involved in. Um, and again, there are much, much more deeper, interesting, well-rounded uh, academic studies out there um, that I would love to delve into more. Uh, but I won't. So I think that's it, really. Um, there are things like we could look at the things such as Abraxas, um, the Great Archon, the World of Darkness. No, not the game line. Um, <laughs> the World of Darkness, which is ruled over by Queen Rua. Uh, and there's Tibil, which is the man uh, from Mandaean theology. Um, so, and then there's William Blake that we could look into as well. But yeah, so as a very brief, confused ramble of Gnostic cosmology, I think that's it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the core things we want to um, point out from this discussion is uh, one unknowably powerful being typically from which you have a dualism projected, uh, which creates these different levels of powerful spiritual entities, which typically imprison a divine humanity. Mm -hmm. I think that's one way to explain it in the briefest possible manner. Yes. That, that's, I think, there's no simple way of explaining Gnostic belief, Gnostic religion, and I, but that's, that's, I think, a good place to start. Yeah. And I see, David, you have, you have some notes down here as well, which I think yeah. will kind of explain how the Gnostic movements kind of commonly interact with this. So I think that'd be good to explore before we get into individual Gnostic faiths. Yeah. So before we go into individual Gnostic faiths, because um, there's a few of them out there, most of them don't exist anymore, but one of them specifically does. They did share some common ideas and common features and beliefs. So one of the core ones is the conviction that the essential core of the human comes from Plemora and must return to it. So we have come from this heavenly realm, we have come from this heavenly power, and we need to return to it. Can't do this because we are held captive in the material world. Insight into human's kind's, humankind's origin, uh, present situation, and, um, and our final destination means that the human being's liberation from the prison of material existence and his return to Plemura can, in principle, now occur and will certainly occur after death. So if we become aware of this situation and that we are held captive, then we can return to Plemura. Self-knowledge and knowledge of God are two sides of the same coin. This knowledge does not result from rational argumentation, but from inner enlightenment, which is based on the revelation from a divine world. Yeah, so basically, I think that's, that's a... Go yeah. ahead. Um, if we, if us telling you about this does not mean that it means you know about it and you will return, Precisely. you have to have um, Precisely. spiritual aware, uh, awakeness, which I think is the next one, isn't it? Spiritual insight or gnosis is not accessible to everyone. Oh no, it's not. Oh yeah, this is this is the fun one. Um, spiritual insight or gnosis is not accessible to everyone, only to those who are worthy, and so its core at least needs to be kept secret. They don't take converts. So most yeah. um, Gnostic schools of thoughts will not be um, evangelical. They will not accept you changing your beliefs. Um, you have to be considered worthy and they have to accept you into it. It's not your choice. So Yeah. Well, I, think, <clears throat> I think this is where that, that um, connection we were drawing to con you know, modern conspiracy theories really kind of mm. plays in, wherein mm. to be accepted into the community, you need to come to them with a belief and claiming that you have that secret knowledge, yeah. um, as opposed to, you know, the proselytization. Um, clearly, there are, you know, conspiracy the theory people that walk around with newspapers and try to get them out. But um, I think this is where it gets very interesting. And, you know, getting knowledge of the sect getting interest in it and then walking up to them and claiming like hey i've like had these these thoughts and you know i think this might be right is probably enough for them to 
start drawing you in, basically. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's it's incredibly less efficient than proselytization. Yeah, I kind of like uh, this kind of the uh, the idea of um, what is it? The secret handshake for the what are they called? Stonemasons. Yeah, no. yeah, Freemasons. Freemasons. Oh yeah, yeah. The Freemasons, their secret handshake. You only get into the Freemasons if you know the secret handshake, um, hmm. which I actually know. Uh, just to just share that one out there. I don't know how I know this, oh. but I do know this. I do know the uh, the Freemasons' secret handshake. It's really, really okay. not very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I was really disappointed when I discovered it. Yeah, Chris and I were talking to a uh, a guy who's a Freemason in Boston once, and uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's really just like. It's a secret society, but it's really just for small business owners to, you know, meet and yeah. work stuff out. Yeah. Anyway. anyway, shall we move on to uh, the individual cults? I think we've got a few of them here. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. <clears throat> let's start off with uh, Valentinianism, which is uh, one that we were referencing a ton um, in the above discussion, because it's, again, probably probably the one that's most talked about in uh, mm. English language. So Valentinianism was the original big Gnostic movements. Uh, you know, it, and, and it was uh, exodent uh, at the same time as like er other early Christian cults, such as, you know, Nestorianism, which kind of became the Church of the East, um, and what would eventually become the Roman Proto-Orthodox cult, which then basically became the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and, and Eastern Orthodox as well, because those had a schism too. Uh, the founder of the school of thought was Valentius, who was a respected member of the Proto-Orthodox priests of Rome, but uh, he was unfortunately passed over for promotion to bishop. So of course, it was time to get really salty and create a heresy. Yeah, he, he was not happy about that, was he? <laughs> no, he wasn't. But, you know, obviously he didn't just instantly say, oh, I'm going to I'm going to create a schism. He probably had, had been reading a lot of these texts and was curious about them, but it seems like a lot of historical sources think that that's a really put him over the edge to really yeah. go off and do his own thing. So Valentinianism uh, contains cosmology and constructs uh, similar to other forms of Gnosticism. Uh, there is a godhead uh, called, in this case, uh, Bythos. There are 30 sexually paired aeons and a special aeon named Sophia. Um, where Valentinianism uh, particularly diverges from other cults is in practice. Uh, central to their faith is the exploration and you know, struggle for gnosis, that secret knowledge. Um, with this knowledge, they hope to be elevated to that heavenly realm. Uh, at birth, these Gnostics did baptize their infants, just like other Christians, but the ritual, ritual had a, a very unique feature. The children were baptized and blessed uh, by a secret name, which was supposedly the same secret name told to Jesus at his baptism. Uh, and they thought that the secret name, which was kind of like their initial gnosis, that initial secret knowledge to induct them into the cult, uh, would protect the human on their spiritual journey. Their mortal journey, the cultists believe, was intrinsically linked to an angel, uh, since uh, angels in this case, you know, Gnosticism created the world and man, which is very different than what the other Christian uh, believers thought. And they thought that by gaining enough Gnosis, they would one day be elevated into a union with their angel in 
a feature of their cult, which was a sacramental bridal chamber, wherein they were basically married to their angel if they progressed far enough in their faith in their cult. Kind of the proto um, guardian angel story, this, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And that's maybe where elements of that kind of came from in modern Christian uh, dogma. Yeah, considering how connected Valentinian is to that proto-Orthodox and Roman time and the Roman Catholics, um, you can kind of see how maybe they would have connected, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's important for the next next thing mm. here. Um, so the Valentinians treated the proto-Orthodox and the Roman Catholics as kind of simpletons who worshipped the correct deity but were blind to their to their true nature, their own divinity, and the secrets of the world. Um, more traditional Roman Catholic Church saw the Valentinians as basically kind of wolves in uh, sheep's clothing, luring in Christians towards even more radical Gnostic teachings. As the Roman Catholic Church solidified its power in subsequent centuries, the active practice of Valentinianism kind of died out, but the secret knowledge of its teachings and tenets obviously remains, because there's so many writings, different texts. But kind of echoing what you were just saying, David, I think it's it's unlikely that Valentinianism was was you know like attacked or completely snuffed out. It was probably kind of absorbed into the uh, the Catholic Church. They said, oh well, you don't have like a special angel that you're, you're that's part of you, but you have the guardian angel, for example. And yeah. Yeah, taking those elements and kind of massaging them to make a uh, uh, a a kind of unified product is probably more what happened. And that's why Valentinianism. It was a lot to do out. with Irenaeus again, um, he, the guy who codified the Bible. Um, really did not like Valentinians. Um, really, really did not. So he, much in the way that we see throughout history with with certain popes and certain religious leaders, went on a full-on mission to try and wipe out Gnostic belief um, and forcing forcing people to believe in a codified Bible and what became the Orthodox Church. So much like with when Charlemagne came up through Europe and then um, everything that happened in in England with with forcing baptisms on people, the religion never really died out. It was just practiced in secret, most likely. Mm -hmm. It's why with the Nag Hammadi Library, it was found buried and in a really obscure place so they would probably have had to have kept their texts very very secret and very very hidden um, and as you say likely the the catholic church and the proto uh, and the orthodox church would have co-opted certain things as they do throughout time like hell is a co-opted idea um, so they'd have, they'd have tried to bring things in to make it e- a slightly easier transli- transition, but still not the easiest. So let's talk a little bit about the Manichaeans. So as Valentinians kind of petered out, other Gnostic cults continued to spring up. And in the uh, third century, in the Sasanian Empire, which is in present-day Iran, a great thinker and prophet, uh, Mani, uh, introduced a radical new idea. What if all religions were elements of the same truth. Everyone was right a little bit. Uh-oh. Yeah. Um, they're all pieces in this elaborate tapestry. All right. So 
uh, he kind of started creating this this dogma and then eventually uh, religion combining elements of Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Hellenic polytheism, Buddhism, Babylonian polytheism, and even Mesopotamian cults. So uh, Manichaeanism is it kind of spread like wildfire across Asia and of course the Roman Empire as well. Uh, which ultimately started to cause a lot of friction with these existing religions that uh, didn't think they're all the same. So it's a very interesting thing. I'm not going to dive into all of the really the plethora of features of this religion. Uh, yeah, um, no, that, that will take longer than looking at Gnosticism by itself. Exactly. Honest, so. Exactly. But why is Manichaeism uh, considered Gnostic? So. Uh, it's built on the same foundation of Zoroastrianism, which is, of course, a very dualistic religion itself, with a battle between good and evil, light and darkness codified into the religion, where mankind is uh, torn between a fallible good god, uh, who's the uh, called either the father of greatness or uh, Zervan, which is, um, I believe, one of the names for the Zoroastrian uh, core deity. And then also torn between uh, that good god and then the deceiver of evil, who is typically called either Araman, of course from Zoroastrianism, or Satan. In addition to that uh, dualism, human souls might become enlightened and grow to join a higher plane, traveling back to a world of light uh, from which they originated. Manny uh, himself became a prophet after receiving secret revelations from and having a union with his angelic twin or divine self uh, which of course led many Gnostic researchers and and not, not really researchers but um, Gnostic thinkers at that time to the believe that uh, Mani yeah yeah that's a good word for it it made them believe that Mani was of course enlightened with Gnosis so they really started to gravitate towards uh, uh, Manichaeism uh, essentially, when combining all these different religious ideas, certain Gnostic traits were wrapped up in this new religion. It should come as no surprise to, to anyone that uh, Manny's great idea of combining all religions didn't go over so well in the late uh, Iron Age, and it was widely persecuted, particularly in the Roman Empire. They just didn't like this. You know, they were just turning, turning towards Christianity and didn't want to have anything to do with uh, Manichaeism. Um, and, you know, in other parts of the world, even in Persia, where it uh, where it began, it lasted for quite some time. Uh, I think until the 700s, 800s AD, but it really fell out of favor at that point. But surprisingly, uh, Manichaeism actually survives to this day in yep. some remote parts of China. Uh, it's very, very secretive, as most kind of Gnostic religions are, but also it was oppressed a lot, not just in communist China times, but also even during the uh, the Ming Dynasty and the, the Qing Dynasty as well. So it, it's still around, but uh, incredibly rare at this point. It's an incredibly interesting concept, and you can draw some side connections to other other religions and beliefs nowadays. But it was very much kind of we'll pick and choose. Um, pick and choose which bits of which religions we like. Um, it wasn't so much that everything was correct, it's allowed you to pick and choose which bits you liked. 
kind of in a way a bit like chaos magic which allows you to kind of pick and choose which rituals and which forms of magic you like it kind of says everything is okay um, as long as it fits you um, which obviously within things like a strict um, political structure like the church or the Roman Empire or um, other other kind of main religious beliefs which have a dogma they don't like mm-hmm. um, if you've got dogma yeah. you can control people if there's no dogma you can't control people and that's actually a great point because when you compare um, Manichaeism to like Taoism or Taoism for mm. example that's also just a real pick and choose kind of yeah. philosophy in a lot of ways I, I wouldn't say Manichaeism is a philosophy but it's like a um, a, a, a catch-all religion yeah. in that it can kind of feature a lot of different ideas um, that you can pick and choose yeah great point great point so you know we mentioned that uh, the Valentinians uh, probably got absorbed into the church the Manichaeans still exist but in incredibly small numbers um let's talk about the cathars though let's talk about people that uh maybe maybe didn't last that long maybe not. there's 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 even some controversy as to whether they actually existed or not let's stop mm. mm-hmm. whoa i see take that okay <laughs> whoa uh okay i'm gonna take the i'm not gonna uh, get it. I'm, I'm not gonna get approach. In yeah. conversation um <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just gonna go with the the traditional thinking here, and then maybe we'll have a follow up episode because Cathars do feature a lot in uh, some role playing games. Yep. Um, after the the uh, Valentians vanished, and the uh, Gnostic heresies, Gnostic heresies just kind of kept popping up in Christian Europe uh, over the centuries. So there's the Paulicians in Armenia in the Byzantine Empire, followed by the uh, Bogomels in the Bulgarian Empire, and there was Anabaptist cults that kind of spring up every so often, especially amongst the peasants, Uh, but those are usually pretty quickly crushed by church authorities. But in the uh, 12th century, France and Italy, the Cathars, who called themselves the Good Christians, became an incredibly popular uh, cult uh, or heresy amongst the peasantry, and even some nobles. The uh, movement was led by ascetic monks and preachers who only set a few ground rules uh, to follow. Rule number one, the Roman Catholic Church was morally corrupt. You got that, right? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) They got it in one. Rule number two, mortal souls were locked in a cycle of reincarnation to a life of suffering, and the cycle must be broken. Reincarnation in Christianity? Oh, God, no. Oh, yeah. There's something really zesty about that. I don't know if I have any notes about it, but actually, all right, let's 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 pause. Tap the brakes. Reincarnation is bad. Yeah. Central tenet to Christianity is that this... Um, Doesn't happen. Uh, that, is that Jesus was re- resurrected and went back to his body. The Cathars think that's a bad thing. They're like, oh, this guy, is, he's teaching you the wrong thing. Jesus is actually kind of evil, and you do not want to reincarnate. You do not want to return to your body. You want to ascend to that higher plane and um, rejoin divinity, essentially. Yeah. So you can see a whole lot of heresy right there and a whole lot of Gnosticism, just in number two. Let's talk about number three. Followers should reject materialism and sex. Mm. Um, a little tough uh, for some people and uh, a little tough to uh, keep a growing religion. Number four, Cathars should not eat meat except fish because animals held reincarnated souls. 
that's a really interesting one. Yeah, it, it's the, what we're seeing here is there's there's kind of a bit in the way, say, with the Manichaeans, is there's this connection to Eastern philosophy. So we've mentioned um, that Manichaeism believes in everything, which allows it to connect to things like Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Shinto, and things like that. And a lot of these ideas are from that. And at this time, um, yep. so around the 1100s to 1200s, we're starting to see these ideas creep into Western Europe. And so I can kind of see how these, these are, are getting in there. Um, also with the not eating meat except fish, um, that you can kind of connect that as well to um, Arabic ideas. So Islam, not eating certain meat and things. So it, it's we're starting to, so you can kind of maybe see the Cathars as a amalgamation of Manichaeism into a single religious belief, I suppose, to some extent, but not quite, because they're also still a little bit weird um, and have their own very, very specific things that they do. Number five, women could hold leadership roles and administer sacraments. So not necessarily priests in a codified church, but they could do things that were definitely not allowed in the, uh, the Catholic Church. You know, famously, women can't, can't be priests in the Catholic Church to, uh, to this day. I was going to say, even to this day, that's still very much considered, especially in the Catholic Church, a bad idea. Um, even even mm -hmm. in some of the more mm -hmm. modern churches, like the Church of England is slowly letting women become leaders, um, but not, not yeah. in high-up positions. Getting dragged, kicked and screaming into the 21st century. Mm. War, murder, and capital punishment should be condemned. Mm. Interesting right there. So not into war. Yeah, take note of that one. Another, another thing, put a pin in it. That'll come up in two paragraphs. So <clears throat> this is some real hippie stuff uh, for Middle Ages Europe. Um, but there are two things that really landed the Cathars in hot water with the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Actually, I guess three, because they were also saying that the Roman Catholic Church is morally corrupt. Um, but first, Cathar preachers taught some pretty serious Gnostic cosmology, declaring that there were two gods who created the earth and were locked in eternal war. Uh, the preachers absolutely loved talking about the war in heaven between the angels and demons, and uh, some even declared that uh, when there were enough Cathar true believers to outnumber the rebel angels, the Cathars would finally ascend to heaven, and all the sinners of earth would be condemned to hell with Satan. So that's pretty cool. And, and if it wasn't clear, yep. you know, the two gods, obviously, you know, Yahweh versus Satan, basically was what they believed. Um, I, oh, hold on, pause that. Not exactly true. Um, they had a very distinct um, uh, view that the evil Demiurge was the Old Testament god who was very oppressive and mean and struck people down, turned into pillars of salt, etc. Whereas there was a nicer god who was the New Testament one. Kind of important for the next point. Yes, it was, it was very much a, um, a way of dealing with the difference between the Judeus, Judaic Bible, or the Old, Old Testament, and uh, the very, very different God in uh, the New Testament, um, because they were different. Right. 
there are other schools of thought within within Gnosticism which do the same kind of thing. So the old school God, the old the Old Testament God is the Demiurge, and then the New Testament God is Sabaoth um, because he created Jesus and he's a much nicer person right. and wants good things. So you can go you can go very very deep with that. Yeah. So <laughs> that was important to note because it's very interesting because clearly they think that the. Uh, the, the God from the, the Torah and the, the Old Testament, the, the Jewish portion of it, is the evil one. But the Cathars really ticked off the Catholic Church because they treated Jewish people okay, you know, by by medieval standards, by Middle Ages standards, you know. They let them, business, let them hold Yeah, they let them hold positions of some authority in uh, Cathar territories uh, in, uh, in southern France. And that was that was a bridge too far, you know. Mm-hmm. The Catholic Church is like, listen, you can call us corrupt. All right, come on. We, everyone talks about it. We know, we know. Okay, dualism, that kind of stuff. But not being anti-Semitic, ah, it's time for a crusade. So the, the church did try to convert Cathars back to the main faith, but it didn't work. They just weren't having it. Uh, and after a missionary was found murdered, the Pope called a crusade to kill Cathars throughout southern Europe, uh, violently murdering whole cities worth of people. Um, and later, of course, the Inquisition was established, and one of the, the key tenets was to hunt down and uh, auto-defe the Cathars. So have public penances, which could be um, whipping, uh, mutilating burning all those sorts of things so really really disgusting things um there are some uh researchers that do consider the uh, albigensian crusade and the uh extermination of the cathars to be a genocide um and i think that is something that should be really considered talking about more yeah um again cathars are uh they like to cause uh, confusion, problems, and make people question um, things. So they, they really did like to piss off like the mainstream beliefs um, by just generally being quite nice people, or at least that was the, 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 the view that a lot of them got. Um, obviously, medieval Europe, you cannot like Jewish people, uh, so that pissed them off. and. Any excuse for the Inquisition to go and hunt people, they, they they were looking for these things. But they're still, as I said earlier, they are still continuing to cause problems. Um, because I think in about 2015, 2016 maybe, um, scholars started to wonder whether they actually existed or not. Um, but that's that's quite controversial. So. <laughs> David, my brain cannot handle that right now. I, I just can't. No, we need to move on. We need to move on. Uh, We've gone on for quite some time. Let's let's very very quickly go over Mandaism and Sethism. Um, just as a quick thing with Mandaism, uh, Mandeans. Um, I'm not going to say much about them, but they are actually an active Arabic Gnostic religion that is still active today. Um, there are probably around sixty to seventy thousand followers worldwide, and it is maybe one of the closest to the original ideas of um, Gnosticism that exists. 
So yes, there are still some other other Gnostic beliefs out there, but Mandaism is rooted in the traditions of um, Valentinianism, not Valentinianism, but um, the original ideas of, of Gnostic thought. Um, they consider themselves the people of the book and are protected under Islamic law. So they are actually um, more of an Islamic Gnostic belief system than a Christian. They're a, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's weird because they predate Islam by 700 years. So clearly they're based off of Arabic polytheism. But is enough of Islam has kind of uh, been integrated into it that they are typically protect under Islamic yes. law. Um, they, they see their similar so it, it's a it's a very very strange kind of synthesis that's going on. Yeah, they, they kind of accept the similar cultural heritage and cultural roots that has led to both beliefs. Um, yeah. We do have a little bit of nine nine characteristic features of, of Mandaean Gnosticism. And this is according to E. S. Drower. what the notes say. So there's a supreme formless entity, uh, the expression of which in time and space is the creation of spiritual, etheric and material worlds and beings. So kind of the monad, but also actually created the physical world. And the cosmos is created by the archetypal man who produces it in similitude to his own shape. So I am, I exist because I think. There's a way you can maybe think of that. Um, again, we have dualism within it, and it also has the syzygy within them. Uh, the soul is prosaic. <laughs> um, again, we get the, soul, the whole idea that the, the soul is captive in the, in the, the physical body, um, and we I don't know. are originally part of the entity uh, to which we want to return. Now we also get a bit of astrology. Uh, the planets and stars uh, influence human human fate. Um, so, but we actually didn't mention this. Um, some of the aeons. I can't remember whether it, I'm sure we mentioned this at some point uh, previously in the notes, but they, it seems to have disappeared. Uh, the aeons and the archons are related to the planets, uh, and I don't know why. I don't know where they, that that note went, um, but yeah. So they, they, um, right, yes, 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 yes. Um, and the twelve were also connected to the the planets, but they added extra things in as well. But yeah, so there was there's planets in there. Um, there's a savior spirit of spirits which assists the soul on the journey through life. So like we were talking with the was it the Valentinians um, and the. The guardian angel appears here. They do have their own language and symbology and metaphor. Uh, we also have the mysteries, the sacraments to aid and purify the soul. So your general, um, usual religious stuff that we get, um, which also brings in the creation story, especially the divine mad Adam, as we've saw, saw and crowned and anointed king priests, and also. As with everything, there is great secrecy. Um, uh, so, but you can be initiated into this. But if you do, you have to um, preserve the gnosis. Unlike Buddhism, where if you reach Nirvana, 
and in the nirvanic state you can pass on your knowledge within this you don't unless you are initiated so that's a very brief muddled look at mandaeans uh, and then we'll do a very brief one on sethians and then we'll get into actually some rpg stuff only an hour and a half in <laughs> yeah Whew. Whew. oh boy yeah this has been this has been intense so uh, Sethians are basically a form of Jewish Gnosticism, uh, focusing on the Torah and Old Testament. Um, and generally, it's very similar to the Gnosticism that David and I were discussing before with uh, uh, Valentinianism and the Valentians. Uh, there's a godhead, a demiurge, archons with the heads of animals, etc. But where it differs uh, primarily is in its interpretation of biblical events. You know, in the Garden of Eden, a prison that was created by the Demiurge, there's Adam and Eve who have lost their full divinity. And it's not until the serpent, who's kind of a mysterious hero in this Gnostic faith, Gnostic belief, this, this serpent convinces Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge that humanity regains some knowledge, gnosis, of its divinity and can finally make its first steps towards freedom from oppression. And I think it's a really powerful concept because it flips this kind of original sin theory um, that's that's held in those in Judaism and Christianity. But instead of making it a sin, it's really a, a first bit of knowledge, basically a first step towards uh, instead of being sinful and evil, uh, being oppressed people trying to seek knowledge and to better themselves towards that divinity. Um, but you know, that's really a powerful concept. Um, and I think it explains why Gnostic cults have, have stuck around so much. Because instead of telling people, hey, you're you're bad, you're evil, that sort of thing, saying, hey, you're actually a special person, and if you get this knowledge, you can become even better, mm. that can be very powerful for some people. And I think that's kind of the allure that um, that it holds. It's very much the, the opposite of you done messed up you're now bad people too yeah something went wrong now you are actually gaining the knowledge that you need to become a better self um, and giving people that I suppose bite of the apple is the phrase that comes to mind here um, tempt people with a bite of the apple allows you to become knowledgeable lack of control as well it's I'm not going to get into yeah. it deep conversations here let's go on to uh role-playing games <laughs> um yeah so how can we use narcissism in uh in role-playing games you know obvious notes uh narcissism has been portrayed in several role-playing games cult is you know the most obvious example which directly ports a lot of sethian and uh valentinian uh nomenclature uh and ideas into the game uh you know with archons aeons uh, etc and kind of that seeking seeking knowledge and gaining power through that knowledge but uh, ultimately uh, being quite changed from the experience mm -hmm. um, there's also Mage the Awakening which famously uses Gnostic concepts to make its own completely unique uh, cosmology you know there's clearly you know uh, similarities between Exarchs and Archons uh, for example but uh, it is kind of its own thing it doesn't really poach any you know direct nomenclature or verbiage from Gnosticism itself. Um, Demon the, the Descent as well, you know, uses a lot of uh, Gnostic ideas. 
The, uh, the genocide of the Cathars also gets explored quite a bit in Vampire the Dark Ages, which is uh, uh, pretty notable. Um, and all these games, I would say, you know, if you want just something that you can easily use these concepts with, uh, and have an you know, interesting and serious way to explore Gnosticism, uh, these would probably be the three or four um, that you want to uh, gravitate towards first. But how are we going to use these, these ideas in other games? Um, you know, the most popular horror role-playing game is probably still Call of Cthulhu. And off the cuff, Call of Cthulhu and Gnosticism thematically, they clash. You know, Cosmic Horror typically punishes players for gaining knowledge by impacting their sanity uh, or sending them towards breaking points or uh, anything like that. Stress points in different uh, Cthulhu-style games. But Gnosticism as a religion encourages seeking out uh, hidden knowledge and forbidden books to step closer to freedom uh, through divinity, or freedom of your divinity. Moreover, Call of Cthulhu investigators should really be normal people, um, not these, these beings with a divine spark. So balancing cosmic horror and Gnosticism uh, is, it's, you gotta be really delicate, it's a very careful balancing act. But here's a couple ideas. So. Gnostic ideas can be really easily used for cultists, uh, since they've already gone crazy. You know, cultists of Yeg, Yarlathotep, Shub, etc. Um, uh, they they already are are worshiping uh, these deities. They've already probably lost their minds. But uh, instead of having them worship so that they get eaten first, which is kind of the typical joke about these called Cthulhu cultists, maybe have them convinced that they are going to unlock this divine spark and it could just be confusion it could be their own misconceptions or maybe there is something to it you know Nyarlathotep for example is a, a very powerful deity that could do something to unlock humans from their mortal coil now would they be divine entities you know going to some higher god no no I don't think so that doesn't fit with Call of Cthulhu at all but that could cause some very interesting effects for your investigators to explore. It's, um, I suppose, with Call of Cthulhu and I suppose some of the other ones as well, um, it can just be the idea so the gods could play upon people's belief, saying, follow us, do these worshipping this way, and we will, we will free you, fully in the knowledge that that's not what's going to happen, that they're just going to get eaten. So you can, you can kind of play on the trickery of falsity so the gods are using people's own beliefs this is very touchy and it is a little bit you need to be careful with the way that you portray that um, because as we've discussed some of these beliefs are still real and people still do use them and believe in them but if you look at um i've talked about cults in rpgs um in seminars and things um, they're great to use, but you just have to be a little bit aware of your audience, the players that you're with, and things. So, yeah, you could you could take it as uh, Nyarlathep is like, oh yes, cool, these people believe this. If I tempt them with the knowledge of Gnosis and becoming part of the Divine Spark, then I get my feeding. Mm. Mm. And that can be the way that starts them down the, 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 the insanity. Yeah, actually, you know, um, or <laughs> simply, Yarlathotep wants to eat humans, for example, you know, it doesn't, does not care about them, really. So as they basically leave their mortal coil and join Yarlathotep, 
that's literally just him consuming them, for example, or, you know, with, um, uh, I can't even remember the one, Azathoth, the one that's just, like, basically a nuclear explosion in space, essentially. Yeah, that one's obviously something that's just going to consume yeah. those that, uh, uh, leave their bodies. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. Um, you know, other ideas, you could just literally change your cosmology of Call of Cthulhu. You yeah. have, you're playing Call of Cthulhu, you're using those mechanics, but... The cultists are literally worshipping Aeons and Archons, essentially. This would be different than cult, kind of, wherein um, your investigator does not basically ascend. You are not a, a divine being, but, of course, learning about these things and their horrible um, higher plane would cause you know, the... Uh, the stress points and and you know loss of integrity for example the discovery that you are trapped in a mortal prison and that you are endlessly trying to escape can easily play on the sanity aspect mm -hmm. yeah yeah but i think the important thing with that is just to not introduce cool powers um because that is going to make the insignificance of your existence which is a core tenant of a lot of cosmic horror yeah um remain yeah, I think that's all I want to say for Call of Cthulhu. It's a tough one. It's a tough yeah. one. But uh, other RPGs with a lot of uh, religious aspects uh, tend to be a good place to insert Gnosticism, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, one that came to mind, of course, was uh, Demon the Fallen, because Gnosticism slots in very easily. I don't know, David, if you've, you've uh, explored uh, Demon the Fallen that much, but you're basically usually a, a fallen angel um, who needs to get faith, basically, to exist and also use your cool powers. So creating a Gnostic religion can be very, very powerful, a very powerful tool for one of these demons. Mm. You know, a really great way to entice followers to keep worshiping you, uh, to give you their faith when you promise them, you know, real power, basically ascendance towards the divine, which you know as a demon is not true. These, these humans, they can't, they can't do anything of the sort, but you can also trick them uh, by enthralling some and which will actually give them some real real cool powers in RPG terms but could convince followers of the cult that there is real power in following you and provide more evidence and credence to a false Gnostic faith yeah that, that kind of um, rings true as well with things like the God Machine in, in Chronicles of Darkness um, God Machine creating mm. random cults could be another way in it's part of its its grand plan to do whatever the hell it's doing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I know a little bit about Demon the Fallen, but not too much, so... Yeah, it's just an idea. It's just an idea. But here's something you know a lot about, <laughs> and that's Warhammer 40,000. <laughs> yep. Um, we can use a lot of Gnosticism in that one. It's, it's going to be a little tricky, because clearly it's a, a setting that deals a lot with religion and, you know, obviously like faux christianity yes uh, however it's it's got a lot of differences as well and clearly the existence of chaos entities is something that you don't want to um detract from um because david you were playing you're playing warhammer 40,000, the third edition days so you remember when they introduced the necron codex and had Ooh, the war in heaven and this yes. whole this whole thing that kind of happened before the chaos gods and made them seem so uh kind of detracted from their their threat to the setting uh war in, yeah necron's fighting the katan but we didn't know what the katan were at the time and all that kind of wonderful stuff 
yeah yeah the, uh, the enslaver beings and stuff I, it, it's not mm. actually bad lore but it does detract from the threat of chaos a little bit uh and kind of kind of shifts the focus even so if you look at the the modern necron codex and stuff it, it it's all very much that and creates this aeons long um history of of, of the galaxy beyond what actually is 40k it's interesting um it explains kind of the eldari and orcs why they're there but uh, yeah it gets a little bit too much i think actually yeah well that's kind of interesting i'd like to check it out anyway let's refocus let's get back to uh 40k because most people are going to be playing something like dark heresy or imperium maledictum those are probably the best uh, 40k RPGs to deal with Gnostic themes, and um, obviously they're the best 40k RPGs. That's why. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I. Well. I, probably. Probably. Um. Maybe Rogue Trader. Maybe Rogue Trader can be included in the three. But. Um. Yeah, we can talk after the show. I I was just talking to someone about 40k RPGs pretty intensely. I got some interesting facts. Anyway. Um. Mm. Gnosticism can be applied to the imperial faith, um, which would obviously create different heresies, which already exist in 40k. We do have some heresies like that Star Child cult that's always kind of been in the background and yep. um, other things. Well, just just as you put here, throwing it throwing it in with the Inquisitors. That's what you need to do. You just need you just need an Inquisitor to have a different point of view, and you, you can go straight with it. Sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, some examples of 40k Gnosticism might be uh, claims that the Emperor on the uh, the Golden Throne is false. You know, maybe his spirit is like this uh, kind of mortal, you know, you know, evil that exists. But his divine spirit is, is this omnipresent thing that watches over the, the true believers uh, and aids them. You know, this idea that... Uh, uh, you know, maybe there is because clearly there are acts of, you know, imperial faith that can manifest mm. and and mm. do things uh, and to affect reality. And if they know about that and actually see it, you know, obviously that proves that there is this this emperor entity. But they might think that the one on the golden throne is false. And this does actually have some um, uh, resonance with ideas in the. Uh, uh, Siege of Terra series. Uh, I don't know if you've been following that. I'm not sure how much I should spoil, but um, there is something that happens to the Emperor just before he fights Horus that could, if there was knowledge of that, could lead Credence to such a Gnostic heresy. Well, even if you delve into the Horus heresy itself and why that all kind of kicked off, there, there's certain Gnostic ideas in there. So I'm assuming this is pretty wide knowledge for anybody who understands 40k. Um, Horus rebelled because he thought the Emperor wanted to ascend to Godhood. And that instantly can, can throw in ideas of Gnosticism. He's trying to obtain the, the Gnosis through force, through power. Um, and Horus is like, yeah, no, that's not quite, 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 quite the way you meant to do that. Mm. And so, um, but we can also bring in the idea that the Emperor is one of the I can't remember what they're called, but the, the, the Primarch of the Salamanders is one as well. The Perpetuals. The Perpetuals, yeah. yeah. He's one of the Perpetuals. So this is an inquisitorial heresy. Um, there are different groups of the Inquisition who believe this and don't believe it. Um, and that some believe that he should die so he can ascend to heaven or 
ascend and then be reborn. There's all sorts of really wonderful, weird, crazy theories out there about um, yeah. the Emperor of Mankind. We also just yeah. see, pure and simply, the dualism between the Emperor and Horus. Yes. If you want to go yeah, the, yeah. the religious philosophy. Certainly, certainly, yeah. That's a great thing to do. So you could actually have, you know, imperial citizens that were that worship the emperor, but also worship in kind of a fearful way Horus as well, mm. thinking that he is like basically the uh, the the evil entity in the dualism. Um, it's actually interesting that you were talking a little bit about some Horus heresy history because, and I don't think this is so much hard canon anymore, but it used to be that um, the emperor was created from a bunch of psychers and like shamans, witch doctors and other things, all getting together and basically committing ritual suicide in very early human history. And their psychic energy kind of all coalesced into this one entity, which became the, uh, the emperor of mankind. Yeah. And that's actually an interesting inverse of Gnosticism, wherein from, let's say, the, the, the souls or divine energy of, or psychic energy of regular humans, it created this one, I don't want to say superior entity, but a more powerful entity, let's say, Yeah. Um, which is an inversion, which is actually quite interesting. Um, I don't know how to use that, but it's kind of cool. Well, you, there's, there's the simple way that if that is true, and I don't know whether it's still part of the, the 40k um, law or not, well, the Emperor feeds on thousands of psychers every day. So he's still taking up souls every day to keep him alive on his corpse throne. So he is taking into himself souls. So is he trying to forcefully, again, ascend and, and reach Plemora, as, so to speak, by gaining people's power? in an act of heresy. Just another idea. Oh my gosh. All right, 40K theory. <laughs> Always the best. Always the best. But yeah. let's move on over to another great setting, which is uh, the Iron Kingdoms. Yes. David, I think you're a bit more familiar than I am, so correct me on anything <laughs> that I, I say here. But you have you have basically two gods of, of kind of magic and humanity, which are Moro and uh, Thamar. They're kind of, and yes. they, they so, echo Gnostic dualism. Very much so. So this this is for anybody who knows anything about Iron Kings, we're gonna look at Well I can be, I suppose we can also go into the the other gods as well, actually thinking on it. Because there's the worm who fights as well, and you end up with dualism within what was the hordes setting. Ah, uh. I've not looked at this for so long. Uh, since Chris started doing stuff for Iron Kingdoms, I've been meaning to look into it again on the cart, and I've, right, I've not yeah. had time. So, but, so all my knowledge so, is like second edition knowledge. Yeah, fair of the, enough. Of the tabletop game. And so is so is mine mostly. I, I've read through a few things, um, uh, you know, to help Chris with like playtesting and stuff. But yeah, my my knowledge is a little older. But uh, we we both know that uh, you have Moro, who's the lord of goodness, while Thamar is a, a deity of, of selfishness. Um, yeah. And in their lifetime, humans may be visited by either god uh, and in, in this act called the Volition, wherein they're presented with a moral dilemma. They don't really know that this is going on, but it is at one point in their life the gods will act uh, and put something in front yeah. of them. And the mortal's subsequent choice in that moral dilemma will point them onto the path towards either god essentially 
do they uh, start to lead a very, uh, let's say, goodly life, or one that's uh, very selfless, or a selfish one where they might try to seek power, seek forbidden magic, and stuff like that. Yeah, so it, it's the the difference between Moron and Thalmor. They were twins um, back yep. in the history of, of the Iron Kingdoms, and they both um, ascended. I can't remember what the word is that they use in, in, in the setting, but they both basically reach godhood, but through very different means. Thalmar um, attained godhood through mystical knowledge uh, and magic, and Moro gained godhood just kind of through being good, <laughs> being a, a righteous yeah. soul. And so they created these two paths that are both accepted religious tenants within within the setting um though Tharmar is looked at less favorably I suppose yes uh, yeah uh absolutely i mean but it is it's and Tharmar is very much more about gaining secret knowledge whereas morrow is yeah. about the goodness of life so yeah Indeed. in in, in, a, in a way it's kind of a very dualistic um, form of Gnosticism in, in the ways you gain knowledge. Morrowites yeah. tend to be scholarly. Tharmorites tend to be ooh, weird magic shit. Let's do some funky things and blow shit up. Yeah. But you could still really introduce that kind of Gnostic mystery into your game. Yeah. Uh, wherein, you know, after uh, certain individuals, not all, obviously not every single human in this setting is going to be on the path to or, or closely cleave to the path to other Morrow or Thamar, but some particular individuals, whether they're chosen or they themselves choose to follow it, are going to uh, gain particular patronage and maybe gnosis, mm. secret knowledge from those gods, uh, and as they follow more and more, they'll gain secret knowledge that only some would have. And of course, they can trade that in between each other as well, um, with those that they really trust, or those that they barter with. Yeah, um, I think it could be a really, really interesting way to take it, um, especially if you start to deal with the uh, the nightmare um, aisle and and what's going on over there with all the the weird, weird stuff that happens with that. I don't know whether that's still a thing or not. Obviously, we've got the Orgoth who have come back, who are going to have secret hidden knowledge that is very, very different to the the knowledge of. What is happening now? I don't know anything about the Orgoth yeah. other than what is from the second edition, as in which, they disappeared which was a long not, time ago. <laughs> which was not a lot. There was something with the Orgoth wherein, and this is secret knowledge in itself, where mm. there a lot of the memory of them was kind of erased from the inhabitants yeah. of um, of the the conquered continent. Uh, yeah. So, you know, them returning is interesting because it's like, oh, now we see what they they really look like. But there is still that kind of knowledge gap. Um, yeah. and there's dealing with that could be kind of Gnostic in its own way yeah there's also just well I the the, the, the small amount that I do know um, with the reset of the universe there is uh, what were they called the mechanical race the ones who like to turn themselves the, into uh, robots the the cricks the cri no 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 not the cricks uh, the cricks were the night uh, the nightmare realm um, I'm right. gonna have to google it um, I want to say it's, it begins with C. I want to say Cyrus. Or something oh, like uh, Cyrus. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that race—they um, basically saved the world. Uh, 
um, by getting rid of all the weird weirdness that was happening on. Um, but they had secret knowledge um, from the stars. They're kind of a bit like the the lizardmen, I suppose, um, okay. with their secret star knowledge. So they as well had a lot of darkness and hidden knowledge that that you could go around. So you could find some of their temple, their old temples, because um, they built a gateway um, that allowed people to travel through it and. And things, I'm, I'm very vague on the history of it and, and the lore of it. Chris would be a much better person okay. for that one. Oh, yeah, so I think certainly Iron Kingdoms would be a really interesting place to go with it, um, because it's obviously an actual evolving world, unlike they tried to say with 40k. Um, right. So there's one game on here as well that I'd kind of like to side mention that we've not got notes on um, mm -hmm. and it's basically my it's one of my favourite RPGs if not my favourite RPG which is Vesson um, oh yeah this, here we go <laughs> yeah so Vesson um, is obviously free league it is set in the real world to, to some extent um, it is set in the real world in the mythic real world so uh, fairies and, and dwarves and giants and dragons exist uh, but only for people who have the sight. So um, you have to have gone through some form of trauma that involved a Verson or a fey creature, which would have given you the sight, which means you can then see them. So this is secret knowledge instantaneously. Um, so all the books and things that we see out there, so Grimm's fairy tales, the Grimm's in this world had the sight and they wrote about them, but people just see them as fairy tales. So gaining the sight is gaining secret knowledge into a world that only a few are aware of. Now, bringing in Gnosticism, you can bring in similar ideas with the Cathars, where the church wants to stop people with this knowledge. They, they, they obviously don't like the, the Vesum. They, they go against their beliefs. And so right. you, can, yeah. you can bring in the society has to fight against a church order who's trying to shut them down because, oh no, people can't know about this secret world because that goes against what we believe. Um, bringing in Inquisition and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and certainly, um, if you can figure out a way wherein the existence of the Vesson actually really threatens the uh, the church. You know, because clearly, in this setting, the assumption is that, you know, fairies, trolls, giants, etc., they exist. Mm -hmm. um, would does does in some ways and this is going to obviously differ a lot from the setting but does belief in those things cause them to exist wherein if the church stamps out all belief in them they will cease to exist which is actually kind of a warhammer thing with like what the emperor was yeah. trying to do but um that's what i'm wondering and that's that's why i think you really need to have like a uh, a good motivation for the church to uh, I think that, that could be the motivation for the church. That could quite easily yeah. be the motivation for it, but that's not it how it's be a false. Yeah, it could be yeah. a false motivation, right? It could yeah. be that's oh, it, thing. Be a false it's completely wrong. Yeah. But if, if if they get rid of everybody who has the site, there's nobody to write about them in a realistic kind of way. So therefore, belief in them will disappear. Um, so the actual kind of story is obviously it's set in the 1800s. Industrial Revolution is going off. Loads of loads of building uh, work, train tracks, and all this kind of stuff is forcing the Vesson out of their homes. They're being pushed away, and the Vesson are fighting back, going, "Hang on, this is our land. Please, 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 don't do this." 
And so there's this conflict between the old and the new, and the church is obviously probably going to be more favorable to the new. Um, so the more that they can promote growth in industry and, and knowledge and, and hidden, hide ancient knowledge, pagan knowledge is to the benefit of the church. So um, this is just something that I'm kind of putting out of my head right at the moment. I've not thought about it. Uh, mm. There's probably a load of more fun ideas you can do for it. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a good it's a good it's a good setting which allows you to bring in these kind of ideas. Absolutely. Anyway. Absolutely. And there's probably a million yeah, think... other RPGs that it would fit with. Oh, uh, it's tough, though. It's, it's quite, it's quite challenging. It's quite challenging. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, like Cult is like, you know, it just is the Gnostic RPG. Yeah. Um, but because things are so weird, and uh, yeah, I think, I think RPGs wherein there is some sort of like power that inner power that the characters have could play well with Gnosticism. You know, I was thinking about um, CJ Corella's witchcraft being an option, but mm -hmm. you know, that obviously plays into a lot of new age things and uh, esoterica as well. Um, so that could be good. Um, you know, obviously Mage of the Ascension uses Gnosticism uh, in some places as well. Uh, Dark Ages Mage. Uh, games like that. A lot of things dealing with magic, obviously. Anything that kind of um, maybe even hints at divine sparks within within people, um, I think you can lean into. So there's loads of stuff out there. It's just a matter of you can even, I suppose, if you're looking at designing your own setting, you can use this as a how to create your own cosmology for a world. Um, yeah. Because it's because you can see how mental cosmology can be just in, in real world religions with with Gnosticism. So it can give you ideas of how you can take what on the surface could be appear to be quite a nice religion, but then the more you delve into it, the weirder it gets, and you can kind of take that idea with it. But yeah, um, I think we've talked for long enough. Um, Way on too this. long. Way too, Way too long. long. My brain is, brain Sorry, is melted. My brain is <laughs> melted. But uh, all right. So uh, for the uh, listeners that made it uh, to the end, thank you so much for listening to <laughs> some of these ramblings. But uh, we're actually going to help you out with exploring this more. Uh, David has uh, looks like four YouTube videos right here, uh, which we're going to link to in the show notes that you can check out. Uh, we've got <laughs> Gnosticism is me explains. Uh, org okay so i think that would be a great place to go as well to uh get some uh summaries and uh other things and thinking maybe we should actually just put these show notes online as well so that people can kind of follow along and reference back because uh there yeah. is there's a lot here yeah um and i think that'd be good for people to yeah, have throw, a, throw a reference the, as well. um whatever it is the website uh, yeah. yeah on the blog yeah we'll put it there and that's it. Uh, so we're, of course, Darker Days Radio. Um, and it's been a pretty cool secret frequency. First one in a while, so that's been great. I think it's almost been a year since we had a secret frequency. But yeah. this one's been... Uh, it's been a, a quite... A long quite time coming. Mountain to climb. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you want to find out more about our work in uh, horror gaming, check out uh, darker-days.org. Uh, also, that blog, um, which can be found on our link tree, which is a link tree slash darker days radio you'll find a note to that uh, or a link to that into the uh, show notes um if you want to send us an email email us at darker days radio at gmail.com and until our next secret frequency good night good luck and stay safe out there goodbye <laughs> <laughs>